Welcome to The Athlete and the NARP. I'm Jenna Daly, and I'm the athlete. And I'm Claire Fenton, and I'm the NARP. And if you don't know what a NARP is, then you're one too. episode of The Athlete and the NARP. Before we get started, I want to give a content warning that this episode contains mentions of sexual abuse and domestic violence, so please listen at your discretion. This topic that we're going to talk about today, the systemic issue of domestic violence and sexual abuse across all sports globally and leagues, is something that Jenna and I are both very passionate about. This is going to be one of our most opinionated episodes. It's something that we've grown up hearing about ever since we were young. It honestly is just something that seems to be just a part of sports culture, unfortunate as that is. And some recent events in the news that have come to light have made us want to sit down and really take a deep dive into this topic and express our thoughts and opinions on this issue. We're just going to start off with Jenna talking about one of the most prevalent and one of the incidents that has been in the headlines the most in recent weeks. Yeah, Claire and I have been talking about this one a lot and sending each other all the details that we can find when new things come up, but it's this reinvestigation of a sexual assault investigation with five hockey players from the 2018 Canada World Junior Team. So that was Michael... McLeod and Calfa of New- the New Jersey Devils. It was Carter Hart from the Philly Flyers, Dylan Dubé from the Calgary Flames, and Alex Formenten, who is part of a Swiss club team, not in the NHL at the moment. I wasn't aware of this event when we when it was first an incident in 2018. I really wasn't into hockey that much then, and I don't think that there was as much coverage of things like this six years ago. And so what there's been detailed reports about recently that we've been looking into is pretty much they investigated, it was reported immediately to the police in June of 2018, but pretty much right away. And then it was dismissed in February of 2019 because there wasn't enough evidence to have a conviction. What people didn't realize is that the survivor actually filed another lawsuit against Hockey Canada and the Canadian Hockey League and then eight players in April of 2022, but Hockey Canada settled out of court on behalf of all of them, which this was very hush-hush, like this was definitely hush money. People, People did not know about this until a reporter found out and broke the story, ended up finding out that There's a multi-million dollar settlement fund that Hockey Canada uses to cover up things like this, which is just, that was shocking to me. I probably imagine you too, Mm -hmm. to learn that they have a literal fund to settle things like this and, I don't know, hide evidence, which is just crazy. What I think is pretty crazy about this one is how these players and their current teams are handling the issues. The one that I think is really interesting and quite honestly ridiculous 
is Dylan Dubé of The Flames stepped away for mental health reasons. That was what they put out publicly, and that was days before the news broke, I believe, Mm -hmm. of this instant resurgence. So then they just, the organization and Dylan Dubé just looked ridiculous, and it's pretty crazy to say that you're stepping away for mental health reasons and then find out that he's being arrested for sexual assault charges. Carter Hart and Alex Formenton stepped away for personal reasons. That was what they put out. And then the Devils said that McLeod and Foote requested and have been granted indefinite leave of absences from the team. So that one's probably the strongest statement we've seen, but even that is fairly weak. There were questions of whether people were putting out because I guess the London police, the team that's investigating this, said that the earliest a trial would happen is 2026, which is two years from now. And the question was, what will happen to them in the meantime? Will they? Because they haven't technically been charged with anything yet or convicted of anything. The question is, will they still be able to play in the NHL? Will they still get paid? Or are they just indefinite leave, kind of no career for, until this goes to trial? And then who knows how long that will take? And when this case in particular, there is pretty specific and damning evidence that these people were involved. It's not just a an accusation that was thrown out there that there's not a lot of evidence for. There is video and audio file of them kind of holding her hostage and making her say she is consenting to what they're about to do. And it's just absolutely reprehensible. There's no other word for it. And it's really unfortunate that it's taken them six years to prosecute any of them for what they did. It's great that it's happening and that we're finally there, but the fact that it took six years and Hockey Canada was completely complicit in covering this up, its I'm, there's really not words for it. And like Jenna said, the fact that they have a fund for this type of thing, they know and they're accepting and they're saying that it's okay that this is part of our culture. This is part of what it means or what it is to be on Team Canada or to be a hockey player, however you want to take that. And we're okay with that, and we're going to protect our players. It sets a really bad precedent. It's it's really bad. Yeah. And executives of Hockey Canada revealed that they actually knew about the incident and didn't do anything about it. The only reason it was the case was reopened by London police was because of just, like, increased attention, and then the federal government actually froze Hockey Canada's funding, and sponsors ended up part... Like, there was financial repercussions to this yet hockey canada decided to cover it up instead and so now they're they're really dealing with the aftermath which as they should absolutely and that's a common thread that i think we've noticed in a lot of the cases that we've looked at is the financial and the pr aspect of these cases where leagues and organizations and executives are incredibly hesitant to do something until it's a necessary thing for them to do Mm -hmm. until it means they're going to lose money, they're going to lose sponsors. Their PR is going to suffer, which means they might lose money, lose sponsors. And the fact that it, you know, takes that for it to get to that point for any organization, not just Hockey Canada, that there's just placing financials above morals when these serious crimes are committed and there's evidence, hard evidence that these serious crimes are committed and you're okay with letting people that 
do that type of thing, just continue to be a part of your organization. Ugh, it, it, it just, like, makes my skin crawl, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, it's really just, I mean, it's disgusting. And it's disheartening to see that an organization with such power and influence over, I mean, thousands of young players are saying that this behavior is okay and they're enabling people to do this and get away with it. Like I said before, it's a bad precedent and then it's just such bad enablist behavior. And the London police have already given some statements about what's going on and they've released the names that these players are being investigated, they're being arrested. They've released their names and that information. They're holding a press conference on Monday, which is tomorrow as of the time we're recording this, where they might have some more information about the case, which will be interesting to tune into and hear what else they have going on and what their plans are for this case. And also at the All-Star Game this weekend, one of the reporters asked Sidney Crosby if he thought that there was a culture issue with hockey as a whole, Hockey Canada. And Crosby had told him at the time, he said, I don't think it's appropriate for a 15-second soundbite, but I'm happy to talk to you afterward, and he did. So I'll be on the lookout to see if there is an article at some point containing his comments and his thoughts on that, because I think that's really valuable to hear, and I respect that he Mm -hmm. wanted to take that conversation and give it the gravity it deserves. I think it goes to show that if that play other players are taking this seriously and other people within the league are taking it seriously and are not thrilled that this is happening, who knows how many of them were also aware of things like this that happened or how many of them also feel like maybe there's a target on their backs now because maybe something happened with them. You have to imagine that there are players out there in the league right now where the a very similar situation happened to them and it was covered up by a governing body. It's just, it's awful mm-hmm. to think of. One positive I do want to bring up uh, surrounding the NHL is I do want to commend the Boston Bruins for how they've handled the Milan Lucic domestic abuse charges. At 1 a.m. Saturday morning, November 18th, the Boston police were called to the Lucic household, and he was arrested for allegedly showing up drunk and accusing his wife of hiding his phone, and he was threatening her. Then by that afternoon, the Bruins had actually released a statement saying that he was taking an indefinite leave of absence, and the organization takes these matters very seriously. They didn't mention, like, the specific incident, but it was very clear that because it was probably less than 12 hours after that they didn't stand against those actions and they were, like, taking the arrest and the charges very seriously and they wouldn't be playing him or condoning what he was doing. So I do think that that's a great step for an organization. The future remains unknown. The NHL doesn't have a set domestic violence policy, so it's pretty much at the discretion per team, per player. Lucic entered the NHL Players Assistance Program, which supports players with various issues, including substance abuse or mental health. It also helps uh, their family members as well. While he's in this program, he can he can still get paid, but we don't know what the Bruins are going to do once he's completed the program that he's in. So he wasn't waived before he entered the program. He very much could come back and play. It's unlikely, given that he only had a one-year contract and he's aging so his play isn't at the top level 
But one thing I was thinking about when thinking about, okay, he's still getting paid in this program and things, and, like, of course, that definitely makes sense for players that are dealing with mental health issues or, yeah, so, like, it, it makes sense for them to get played. Like, they're taking the steps and the means to correct their behavior and, it, like, just improve their well-being. I'm wondering if, if the NHL were to create, like, a domestic violence policy and even if players go into this program, should they be getting paid after they've been charged with a domestic violence account? I would hope the answer would be no. Right. <laughs> but when there's no precedent, maybe that's something that, who knows, maybe this Hockey Canada thing will mm-hmm. spark something. I feel like they or really the Cros- should. Or the Crosby. Or the Crosby, interview. right, depending on what he says and what his opinions are. I really feel like there should be a league-wide policy. They should have something in place to It's strange that they, d- they don't, It is to be strange honest. that they don't. For it to be up to the discretion of the organization to handle it correctly, you would hope that they do, like the Bruins seem to be doing, but... Obviously, sometimes they don't. And I think a good example of an organization not handling a situation to the best of their ability to switch topics to a different sport is Manchester United. I'm really into soccer, so Jenna had not heard of this before I told her about it. I think it was pretty well known in the soccer world, if you're into soccer. The Mason Greenwood situation. So Mason Greenwood, he's 22 years old. He... He was a former England team player. He's a former Manchester United player. At the time of this incident, he was playing for Manchester United, and he was one of their best players. He has more goals as a teenager for Manchester United than some names I'm sure you probably had heard of, such as Wayne Rooney, Cristiano Ronaldo, Marcus Rashford, a very, very talented athlete. He was arrested on suspicion of attempted rape, coercion, and assault in January of 2022 after his girlfriend posted an audio file of him angrily trying to coerce her into having sex with him and her with bruises and a bloody lip that were presumably left by him. So there is hard audio and hard visual evidence of abuse occurring. He was arrested in January, like I said. The day after, Nike suspended their partnership with him and then A week later, they completely cut him off and said he is not part of our organization anymore. He is no longer a Nike athlete on February 7th. So they acted very, very quickly upon Mm -hmm. this. We've talked a little bit down on Nike in the past, but this is an instance where I feel like they took the appropriate step, which would be to cut him off. FIFA removed him from their EA Sports game also immediately after this happened, kind of in line with Nike. And at the time, he was suspended from training and playing in matches kind of indefinitely, and that ended up lasting 18 months because it wasn't until around February of 2023 that the charges against him were dropped. So that doesn't mean that he was acquitted or that he's innocent. It just means that the charges were dropped. And the reason that was given for that was that there were key witnesses who backed out and that quote-unquote, new material came to light that they felt like they didn't have enough evidence to continue to press charges and accuse him of anything, so the charges were dropped. Greenwood put out a statement that said he was cleared, which is categorically untrue. And at the time, Manchester United was kind of up in the air as to what they were going to do with him because they had a first internal investigation to see, can we cut our contract with him completely? They determined that they could not just terminate his contract during a six-month internal review process. Then at the beginning of August, the question was, well, will he be able to return to the team and just be fully reintegrated back in the squad and come back to playing games? The coach had said 
He's very talented. Athletically, there's definitely a place for him. Manchester United kind of danced around, putting around a statement. They weren't sure what they were going to do. And apparently, up until the last minute, they were considering bringing him back. But it was only because of massive public backlash from pundits, players themselves. They had apparently consulted with the women's team, who was abroad at the World Cup at the time. The details of what exactly those conversations were like weren't released, but they consulted with them. And apparently it wasn't until the very last minute that they decided, okay, the backlash from this is going to be too much. We can't bring him back. Not because, hey, we think that this is a serious matter and we don't want a player that has this floating over his head on our team. And I just want to take a second to actually read the statement that they put out because I think the language in it is very telling and very disappointing. So the statement they put out, again, in August, August 21st said, Our process commenced in February 2023, following all charges against Mason being dropped. Throughout, we have taken into account the wishes, rights, and perspective of the alleged victim, along with the club's standards and values, and sought to collate as much information and context as possible. This has required us to proceed with sensitivity and care to obtain evidence not in the public domain, including from those with direct knowledge of the case. Based on the evidence available to us, we have concluded that the material posted online did not provide a full picture and that Mason did not commit the offenses in respect of which he was originally charged. That said, as Mason publicly acknowledges today, he has made mistakes which he is taking responsibility for. All those involved, including Mason, recognize the difficulties with him recommencing his career at Manchester United. It has therefore been mutually agreed that it would be most appropriate for him to do so away from Old Trafford, and we will now work with Mason to achieve that outcome. So two parts of this statement that I find issue with. One, based on the evidence available to us, we've concluded that it did not provide a full picture and that he did not commit the offenses. That's not up for them to decide whether or not he committed the offenses. I was thinking that as you read that. I think it's unbelievable that they would put that in a statement. The court didn't decide that he was innocent. They didn't decide that he was guilty, but they also just, it it was because people withdrew and other material, like it just, it was essentially dismissed. It's not because they found that he was truly innocent. So I'm actually very shocked that the organization felt comfortable making that conclusion and publicly endorsing yeah putting that out there after there was already so much backlash i I can't imagine what people responded with after they saw that and the second part of this that i didn't like which it seemed to be a little kind of like ugh, is kind of the best way i can describe it (laughs) is i have no way to kind of describe what they're saying but all those involved recognize the difficulties with him recommencing his career at manchester united so Basically, they're saying, we all know that if we bring him back, y'all are going to be unhappy. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're saying it's best that he step away right now. Yeah. That's what they're saying. It's not because, uh, obviously, they think he's innocent. So it's not because of what he did. It's because they just don't want to deal with the fallout of bringing him back. There was a lot of response to this. And I, I think the general consensus was the right decision was made, which was to not bring him back to the team. The statement and how they got there and the terms on which they arrived at that conclusion are very questionable and very disappointing and very upsetting. He got picked up by a La Liga team, Hatafe, and Hatafe was playing Real Madrid in a game on February 1st. And Jude Bellingham, a midfielder for Real Madrid, who was one of the most if not the most famous and best soccer players in the world, who is also English, is also on the English national team, 
just tackled him in the game. Kind of a normal tackle, nothing to complain about there. It was just a normal tackle. But the broadcast caught him right afterward. They zoomed in on him for a close-up, and it really looked like he mouthed rapist. Enough so that Hatafe complained to La Liga. La Liga conducted an internal investigation and hired a lip reader to see if they could figure out what was actually said. And there were rumors flying around that if this investigation concluded that that was what he said and Hatafe wanted to move forward with this, that he would, Bellingham would face a 10-game suspension. Which I don't even, like, I, I don't even need absurd. to get into the yeah. weeds and the details of why that's absurd. That this club and this league is okay. Uh, by the way, La Liga has a long history of racism and not standing up for its players that mm-hmm. have faced horrendous abuse. Like Vinny Jr., for example, who has one of the, been one of the most outspoken advocates for the racist abuse that he faced during games. They have a history of not doing enough or not caring enough to protect their, mostly this is against black players, their black players. Yeah but they are perfectly fine with conducting this investigation and potentially handing out a 10-game suspension. They're okay with like bringing Greenwood into their league and giving him a chance to revive his career after what happened. It's, it's just, it's absurd. Yeah, it's crazy to me that Manchester United was fully supportive of Greenwood and was basically like, we will work with him to figure out his next steps and... And very clearly, he found a team and was picked up, and he's playing now with no real repercussions at all. It doesn't really seem to be affecting his career. That comment wouldn't have made a headline had it not been broadcasted. We wouldn't be hearing about Greenwood and this whole investigation and everything, like, had Bellingham not been caught on camera. That's the truth. Like, it would have it would have just been hidden again, and, like, people would have been unhappy with it the controversy would have eventually gone away and people would just he would still be playing and people wouldn't really be thinking about it so it's just absurd to me that that could have happened Uh, this the whole situation is just ridiculous like the fact that bellingham could get a 10 game suspension when greenwood got none that just blows my mind it just it just blows my mind and i i think it's important to note even though the charges were dropped against him manchester united calls him innocent Apparently, sources told ESPN that employees at Manchester United were so concerned about the possibility of Manchester United bringing him back that they were considering leaving Manchester United and their positions at Manchester United. And again, if this is how players like a fellow English players like Jude feel about Greenwood, and there were people within Manchester United who felt Mm -hmm. strongly enough about this, that they were considering leaving their positions at the club if... Manchester United were to bring Greenwood back. I think that's very telling about who he is and what actually happened, even though on paper he's quote-unquote okay and cleared. Definitely. One part of this that I also wanted to bring up that I think is relevant in pretty much all of these cases is the public posting of his girlfriend of these pictures and the audio files because one thing that happens every single time with stars on the global stage and the national stage is like there is always a group of fans very quick to defend the player whoever it is and they're very adamant about victim shaming and trying to make these people who are coming forward which is already a very difficult thing in itself one because they have to relive the trauma and like speak about it but then also they're juggling the fact that this person is famous and it's going to be pretty much like their word versus their word. And then 
these here are these random people coming in and saying that they're doing it for the money, for the 15 seconds of fame. And so I think that's a really important thing to talk about because I would have a very hard time agreeing with people saying that they're doing it for fame considering how difficult it is and, like, how much you have to put yourself through to, like, be willing and, like, strong enough to go in front of all these cameras and all these media, all this media, to say these things about someone who is very famous and has a reputation. And the guilt of potentially costing someone a career, even though maybe they deserve it, but there's still that baggage that comes with it of you're maybe taking someone's whole career and life away from someone, which in the grand scheme of an incident when it happens is really secondary. There are so many hoops to jump when it comes to accusing someone with higher status and someone with much more power and influence. And that's why Hockey Canada settled. I think that in a way is much easier because you don't have to deal with that, even if it's not truly getting the actual closure that a survivor would need. I feel like in certain leagues, at least certain American leagues, we see in the media all the time headlines about these things. I know recently the NBA has been a topic of discussion because there just appears to be a a bit of a domestic abuse problem within the NBA. And at the beginning of this season, actually, after a couple of high-profile cases from Charlotte Hornets forward Miles Bridges and Houston Rockets guard Kevin Porter Jr., Charles Barkley, an analyst from inside the NBA, was on a segment with Adam Silver just at the beginning of the season, and he took a second and unplanned and asked him, what are you doing about this issue? What are we going to do? There's a problem. Mm -hmm. And Silver was on the spot and he kind of danced around it in a PR way. I think it is important to note and to talk about because there are, especially within the last year or so, again, with these cases that I mentioned, I mean, Miles Bridges got 30 games for felony assault. He was assaulting his ex-girlfriend, the mother of his kids, back in October. He was, he was in that case, suspended for 30 games without pay, which that was a proper punishment for sure. Kevin Porter Jr. was accused of assaulting and choking his girlfriend. This case, I think, was worse, not abuse-wise, but in the way it was handled, because they essentially treated him as, as I talked about before, a monetary decision, just financial baggage. After this, they were like, okay, we have this player who we can't do anything with. They traded him to Oklahoma City, and then Oklahoma City waived him immediately. And basically, essentially, you might think, oh, they did the right thing. They got him off the team. Oklahoma City did the right thing. They waived him. Great. But really what that just meant, it was just a business deal for both sides because Oklahoma City got Kevin Porter Jr. and two second-round picks with that deal. So they actually got two second-round picks out of this. And they had too many people on their roster, so then they were just able to clear up their roster space. The Rockets were able to get rid of this massive PR problem that they didn't want to deal with. And they got Victor Oladipo and another player, Jeremiah Robinson Earl, out of the trade. So they got two really fantastic players out of this. They actually saved $4 million because that's what they would have had to play Porter. They could have just waived him, but they decided to take advantage of the opportunity, and they got these assets, these other two players clear up this cap space, Oklahoma City wins, great, we're all happy. I think the moral thing would to do, or like if you were really trying to take a stand and take a statement, would have been just to waive him. And maybe that should be a policy that the NBA has in place. That if, do, you, do you know if the NBA has policies for I this? I think they have somewhat of a structure in place. I'm not positive, but this was something they were actively looking into and reevaluating and seeing 
you know, what can we do to remedy this issue? And I think Barclay was even asking, not in the sense of like, what specific policies are going to place, but more than like, there are multiple people that are doing this. This is more of a cultural issue. Right. And again, maybe that leads back to maybe the policies aren't harsh enough, whatever. But it's like, why is there this systemic cultural issue in the NBA where this is happening quite frequently? And some of the most famous basketball players, Kobe Bryant had a really serious uh, accusations against him when he was pretty young that kind of murky how they got settled. Paul Malone allegedly had a relationship with, a, I think, a 13 or a 14 year old girl. And he's one of the most famous NBA players ever. And I think both of these are something that everybody knows, but nobody talks about. And I'm not saying every time you talk about Kobe Bryant, you need to bring up that that happened. Right. But I think it's important to know that there is this baggage attached to them. And I applaud Barkley for, I'll say cornering him, but for directly <laughs> yeah, asking him, yeah. catching him off guard in a moment and being like, what are you doing about this? Right. Cool. Well, because in, in order to enact change, you do need to tackle them head on. I mm -hmm. mean, that's why I'm really hoping that something comes of this Crosby interview, and mm -hmm. I really want to hear some of those direct quotes and those hard-hitting questions that I think he's going to have very articulate answers to. You can't dance around an issue and expect an organization to be able to fix it if you're not asking, okay, what is going wrong? What's not working? What can we do to correct it? This It's very similar in the NFL, too. I think I've heard a lot more about the NFL Based on the amount of times I've heard in the news these accusations and charges against players, yet they continue to play and they continue to be these top names that I see everywhere and people are praising for their athletic abilities, I actually assume that the NFL didn't have a statement or a policy at all related to domestic violence. And I was actually wrong. I was shocked. And then I read it and I was like, this might as well not exist. <laughs> so what I found was that the NFL's policy is violations involving assault, battery, domestic violence, or sexual assault will result in a baseline six-game suspension without pay, with more if aggravating factors are present, such as the use of a weapon or a crime against a child. A second offense will result in banishment from the NFL. Six games is not a lot. It's not a lot. <laughs> that is almost laughable to me. And that's clearly not enough to be making an impact. There was actually a study. It was conducted in 2022. And it says not even like the top 1% of players, top 10%, the top 75% of players. That's, that's like three, quarter, three out of four players didn't really see, on average, an impact from their accusation. 75% of players with these accusations weren't affected. Mm -hmm. You don't even have to be that good. Like, you don't <laughs> even have to be, like, this star player. Yeah. You just have to be probably scoring a couple fantasy points. Like, it, <laughs> that's crazy to me. Well, and Jenna even brought up when we were talking about this, the NFL in particular goes so hard with suspensions against like betting yes. and drugs including the criminalization of marijuana mm -hmm. they'll go so hard suspend you for a season or half a season for there's, there's betting on games but something like this happens where you physically traumatized or beaten or done whatever to another person and you get six games that's I, yeah what are, what are the proportions here it's just the fact that someone can is willing to intentionally harm another human being, someone that a lot a lot of times is in their close circle, sometimes not. But just the fact that like someone is willing to intentionally inflict harm that is long lasting and 
these people will carry this trauma and that that's not punished compared to players who bet on sports yet have helmets that have betting sponsorships on them. Mm. It, that's incredibly disappointing. And it sounds like the league is really focusing on the wrong issues. <laughs> and I actually vividly remember when the stories about Ray Rice dragging his girlfriend out of an elevator. This was back in 2014, but I remember seeing those stories on TV when I was younger and watching the video that they pulled from the elevator. At first, he was accused of this, and the Ravens suspended him for two games, I believe. There was more extended audio, more extended video. Thankfully, then he was done. Those images, I, again, this is 10 years later, those images are still in my mind, and I wasn't even personally I mean, affected by this. It's horrifying. It's horrifying it's, to watch. It's horrifying to watch, to hear, and, and had it not been on camera, he would have gotten away with had it. Had it not been on camera, he would have gotten away with it. In the article that I was reading from Eric Corrine from The Athletic, who was discussing the Miles Bridges and the Kevin Porter Jr. situations, he was talking specifically about the Porter trade, and he was saying that the Ray Rice video helped the case in the sense that it made consequences much more severe and it humanized when you had to physically see this abuse that you only mm -hmm. hear about in headlines happening it humanizes that issue and helps people see the seriousness of it and the consequences were very severe so it kind of was the moment everything switched in terms of that but at the same time it sets this precedent of what needs to happen right. when something happens to a player and so it pushes teams when they feel like they're approaching when they're approaching that critical point to squeeze as much as they can financially out of the situation knowing that this is the standard they have to reach, uh, that they should have to reach. Understanding what that means for net financially in terms of them having to pay out a contract or lose a player or drop them from the squad and motivates them to conduct these business deals like the Rockets and the Thunder did before it's too late and before there's nothing they can do about it anymore. And that's nobody's fault. It just is the harsh reality, I guess, of sports being a business, and I think without these leagues taking the responsibility and the matters into their own hands to set very clear policies about what you can do with the player who has been accused of something, then teams are not going to take initiatives on their own. There's not an incentive for them to, and it's not in their best interest unless they're forced to, which is often how these incidents go, which again is very unfortunate, but if that's the reality that we're dealing with, we have to set up policies that fit in that reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Ray Rice incident actually caused the NFL to rewrite its personal conduct policy to increase minimum suspension related to domestic violence. So if it's at six games, I can't imagine what it was before then. And then it also clarified that players can be disciplined even if they aren't convicted, which I think is a very important mm -hmm. phrase mm -hmm. um, and clarification there. The NFL and really the nation needed to see such a graphic, gruesome video to actually, like, for the Ravens to release him. That in itself really says, like, this is how bad it needs to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a very dangerous line to draw and saying that, like, because it's on camera, because it is so... Egregious. Yeah, that's a great word for it. <laughs> Since it is so egregious, this is why we're releasing him. But really, it should be like, he did this, and we are releasing him. We haven't even discussed any of the leagues or incidents that have happened to all women's leagues right. or women's sports. I mean, the USA yeah. Gymnastics scandal, for instance, that was massive and mm -hmm. massively concerning that there was such a big 
I don't know, I, I guess cover-up or just such a lack of accountability from USA Gymnastics and the Michigan State staff where, if, if you don't remember, Dr. Larry Nasser, he was a team doctor for USA Gymnastics. He worked there for many, many years, decades, and a physician at Michigan State. When it was all said and done, there were about 265 different women who accused him of sexually abusing them during his tenure at USA Gymnastics and Michigan State University. And gymnastics as a whole is a very young sport. Girls get out of it mm -hmm. early, typically in their early or mid-20s, they retire, honestly. And it's yeah. not uncommon to see girls at the Olympics who are, in the, who are like teenagers, 14, 14, to, 14 17. to 17 years old. So we're talking about, not that it matters what age they are, but we're talking about very young girls yes. who are in his care, who parents and coaches are trusting him right. to do his job as a doctor and treat them and not sexually abuse them. He was sentenced to a couple counts of 175 years in prison, so he's away for life. But during that trial, Michigan State also had to settle $500 million with 332 victims, which is, that's a crazy amount of money and an insane amount of women. Wow. The, and at the end, when this was all said and done, the entire board of USA Gymnastics stepped down. The Michigan State president stepped down. Wow. And, and very famous gym, gymnasts came out and put themselves on camera and spoke mm -hmm. in court because they felt like this was important enough to them that they wanted to share their stories and their trauma. I mean, Simone Biles, I mean, Allie Raisman, one of her teammates, Michaela Maroney. It, w it was very public at the time. It's very hard to not have heard of it or know who he was, but... It's just sickening to think that so hundreds, hundreds mm -hmm. of young girls were sent to him. And I, I've actually seen a video before of, it was a parent or a coach who was like, was addressing him in court. The judge was like, do you have anything you want to say? And they were like, I trusted you. I sent all my girls to you and look what you did. And he's like, can you imagine the guilt that I feel? as like a secondhand witness to this mm -hmm. that I recommended and I sent them to you because I thought that I trusted you and you were my mentor and look what you did and look where we are. It's, I mean, obviously he's a very, very reprehensible, morally deficient person, but the fact that it was, it could go on for so long and that that many yeah. girls could come right. through and no red flags were raised, nothing happened is... It's just truly a failure on USA Gymnastics' part. Yeah, and it goes to show that this is very much a systemic issue, not just isolated incidents that are happening in different leagues all over. Um, and it's it also shows that these happen and really anytime or anywhere that there is a power imbalance, mm -hmm. and that that's where it really stems from. And these people are taking they're leveraging what power they have over situations and over people and really taking advantage of it for their benefit to see someone with such influence commit such an atrocity and then hearing, yeah, like the parents just, I, they were probably, I, they probably had no idea what was happening or maybe like they had some inkling but didn't really know what was going on or to what extent like there there's no way they could have known and just the yeah the fact like you said it went on for so long and that no one seemed to raise an issue with it at all 
from from what we know, maybe there was, but doesn't seem like it got it went anywhere. Yeah. And just like maybe there were people who were saying things, but because he had been around for so long and trusted by so many people that it was dismissed as like, oh, he would never do that. But here we are with 332 people. It just whose lives he has changed yeah, forever. Altered forever. Had there been more precautions in place and more policies in place, maybe there would have been something that was flagged or caught or investigated and put a stop to it before. But until until organizations do that, which this is our call to action for those organizations <laughs> to do that, until they do that, it, it's going to keep happening, which is the sad part about it. And this is even something that happens in leagues set up for women, like the NWSL. Yeah. U.S. soccer had to open an investigation in 2022 because four coaches across the Portland Thorns, uh, the Chicago Red Stars, the Washington Spirit, and Racing Louisville had evidence that there were there was abuse happening. Some of it was emotional, some of it was sexual, but four coaches out of a league that's that new and not that big is insane and the investigation that they ended up doing basically found that this starts with youth culture that's that Mm -hmm. was their findings that was their conclusion is that this is something that is systemic it starts when these girls are young and it just carries up into professional sports there was even a situation there was even a cover-up where a coach had coerced players into having sexual relationships with him the club found out and they fired him but when another club hired him soon after they said nothing to that other club they didn't pass along any of the information they didn't let them know what had happened when he was in under their employment there wasn't a public statement and in fact they even wished him well in a post (laughs) ridiculous insane how do you not share that information with knowing that this person committed these atrocities against their players knowing that he is a liability to be coaching these women how do you let him then go be hired by another team and not say anything, not let them know, and then make it part of your public persona, part of your public reputation that you encourage him and hope he does well and that his career continues to thrive, that's abhorrent. Just the PR seems to take precedent in pretty much all of these cases over doing what is right. Yeah. I think all of these examples really go to show, which we've said it multiple times, that this is a very large systemic issue and it starts, yeah, it starts when you're young and it just snowballs by the time you get to these professional leagues. And we talk about sports a lot in this way of it being sports having a large impact on culture and how cultures react to things and um, view certain things. I've also heard many quotes that like the US courts are ill-equipped to handle sexual abuse cases and trials. But I, I think that sports would actually be a decent place to start. I, I think that people look up to a lot of the players, to a lot of the organizations. They have very strong affiliations with them, and they trust them. Um, and people refer to sports as, like, us or, like, our mm-hmm. team and things like that. And mm-hmm. so I think that if we saw organizations and teams starting to put in more consequences and stricter policies related to um, sexual violence, I I think that that would go a very long way in, at least in the U.S., for how people start to view these cases and how 
sympathetic or not people are towards survivors of the instances and how much people are trusting like which side or or saying okay I should be skeptical of this and let me do the research and like rather than just commenting and defending my favorite player ever Mm. I mean sports are a massive part of people's identity they're a big part of our identities obviously Mm -hmm. the sports we play and played the teams we follow like you said the we the us mentality you're tied to where you live sometimes it's tied to where you grew up it's tied to your friends your community like you're very invested in these things and obviously sports ownership knows that they know the brand that they have they should also know that they have a responsibility to be careful about the language they use and the policies they have in place and the way that they go about dealing with serious accusations against anyone in their organization, their players, their coaches, their executives, whatever it is. And I'm going back to the Greenwood situation because it reminds me when I was doing research for this, I was looking on Twitter to try to find the video or to see if there were any updates about what was happening with Bellingham after the suspension may be occurring. And I searched, I think, Bellingham or Greenwood or a combination of both, and a lot of tweets were saying Bellingham should be kicked out of La Liga. Yeah, there I was hope so they much, def- like, people were so defending much Greenwood. And I'm like, what would have happened if, would these people feel the same if Manchester United had used different language in their statement? Would they still feel the same if mm, they had cut him at the first opportunity? I don't know. I can't answer that. But I think sports organizations not handling these situations appropriately and not and the way that Manchester United hedged in their statement and tried to be like, we wish we could bring him back, but people are going to get mad, so we can't. Kind of that like shrug, like, oh, well, I guess this is what we got to do, even though we don't want to. It enables people and gives them the validation they need to be able to, like Jen had mentioned, victim blame, victim shame, to defend their favorite players, to keep bringing up, oh, he was never charged, he was never convicted, like, he's, he's innocent, to throw around that, that phrasing. It enables that culture and that discussion to be a possibility more and more so and to, for those people to have, feel like they have a legitimate reason to be saying what they're saying. I, I shouldn't say I'm sure, but I'm sure you felt some type of like, like some type of pride or some type of satisfaction that the Bruins are handling the situation that they're handling the way they are. Yeah. And you would have felt very differently if it was going about a different way because right. of your attachment to the team. Yeah, I would have, and I... Yeah, I was definitely very proud when I saw that they were, like, indefinitely leave of absence, and it didn't seem very clear that he was going to come back. I will say right now, if he does come back for whatever reason, I would be insanely disappointed in, in the team and feel very let down by them that they were allowing him to come back, regardless of whatever assistance programs he went through. If someone's wife is calling the police at 1 in the morning, they're probably fearful of the threats that are being made and thinking and taking them very seriously. If the Bruins were to bring him back, then yeah, it would pretty much enabling it. And that's, I would not be proud of that at all. Kind of a final thought is we've thrown out a lot of examples of men committing these acts. And I won't throw out more examples, but I do want to point out that this isn't just a gendered issue. This isn't something that women should feel is only towards them and that men are committing all the acts like it it does it does it can go both ways Mm -hmm. women can commit these issues as well and it happens on various levels like I had said it's whenever there's a power imbalance Mm -hmm. so if someone has status or influence 
over someone else, that's when it's likely to occur. And so I think that's really important going forward, not just we're like we're not trying to paint the image of all all men are evil mm-hmm. and all the people who commit these acts are male. Like that that's not what we're saying here. Male players um, just have more capital in this industry. Yes, it's just generally, yeah, like that's in historically mm-hmm. men historically have also well, have yeah. had power over women. Like that's just kind of how it's been. It yeah, it doesn't mean that it's totally one way. And so I wanted to make that very clear. For this week's Fun Friday, we're building the most iconic Super Bowl (laughs) of our lifetimes. Yes. So if you're listening to this and you completely disagree with us, well, just remember that we were probably born a little after you. I'm 2001. (laughs) And I'm 2003. Right. So So if it happened before then, I can't comment. (laughs) We have a couple different categories, so I'll just run through them quickly. We're going to go through best commercial, best halftime show, Best matchup, so that's not the actual game, but, like, the idea of the two teams. The best game, how it actually played out. And the best location or stadium, as well as the best championship ring. My best commercial, this one, I actually don't remember it airing during the actual Super Bowl, but I remember watching it, like, while watching YouTube, kind of when it came out and, like, being so emotional. (laughs) But it's the hashtag like a girl campaign from the 2015 Super Bowl, which is Super Bowl, let me do the math here, 49. It was a commercial from Dove, and they were basically asking, they had a bunch of young girls and boys in the studio, and they would ask them, can you show me what it means to throw like a girl, to run like a girl, to catch like a girl, whatever it is. And they'd all do, like, I remember the boys being like, uh. Yeah, I and remember like, that uh, too. Like, running like this. And, like, the girls would do it too, though. These This first half was, like, older, maybe, like, 13 to, you know, like I said, 13, 15, something like that. Then they asked, like, really younger girls. And they're like, can you show me what it means to throw like a girl? And they were throwing as hard as they could and, like, running as fast as they could. Mm-hmm. And it was really, the whole point of it was just to show girls' confidence takes a dip after the age of, you know, 12 or 13. Before that, they mean they think that throwing like a girl, running like a girl, is a great thing because it's who they are, and they do it to the best of their ability. After that, boys and girls alike, they diminish it immediately. And then they go and ask these boys, would you say that about your sister? They're like, no, that's my sister. So it was just a very emotional commercial for me to watch. And I've written an article for The Wheel about the phrase throw like a girl because that has been thrown around a lot since I was little. But that commercial was just incredibly impactful for me. I went a different route, though. Um, <laughs> much less serious. <laughs> and mine is from 2008. It's a Snickers ad featuring Betty White. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love this one. Yes. Um, I, it's funny because I was only five years old at the time, so I probably ended up seeing this later. It probably wasn't in the Super Bowl. Although maybe it was, and it was super impactful for me. I also remember it, though. So <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little older, so I might have actually seen it. Yeah, yeah. So I really can't remember. Betty White is playing in a tackle football game, and she gets tackled into, like, this massive puddle, and people are like, Mike, what is, like, what are you doing? What's going on? And she's like, sorry, I'm just a little tired. And then she takes a bite of Snickers, becomes a whole different guy, and then plays the game. And I just thought it was really funny. And Betty White is always just so comical. Mm-hmm. It's just, like, the the projects that she picks are always so good. Yeah. So How about we'll stick with the off-the-field stuff. We'll do best halftime performance yep. now. My best performance is Lady Gaga okay. from the 2017 Ooh. Super Bowl, Super Bowl 51. 
And there are honestly a lot of really good ones. Mm -hmm. I'm sh oh, I won't give away what I think yours is, but there's a lot of good ones in recent years. I think Bruno Mars was definitely up there for me. Mm -hmm. That one was because he's an incredible dancer and singer, so he sounded incredible. Katy Perry was actually pretty cool. Black Eyed Peas, I just remember that when I was little. That one was super impactful for me for whatever reason. But Lady Gaga takes the cake, I think, for me because I remember she opened the performance by jumping off the roof of the stadium. That's literally, yeah. And I think it was it was pre-taped. It wasn't like that's actually how she opened it, but I was like, iconic, either way. And then she has just so many good songs. She's an incredible yeah. vocalist. She's a great dancer. She has her costume. She always puts on a show. That's why that's why she's my pick. I ended up going with Katy Perry. Mm. Because it's the most vivid one for me. I don't mm, necessarily yeah. know if it's the best one, but I can really remember it. It's the first one that I can actually, like, probably explain, a, like, a snippet of it to you. Sure. Um, and yeah. so, just, yeah, like, I just remember her stage design and, like, um, kind of the whole production of it was really cool. But I have to say, when I was looking back... From 2004 to 2009 must have been a great time to watch because I'm going to read you some of these <laughs> names, and I'm jealous that I can't remember these. <laughs> so it was Janet Jackson, Paul McCartney, Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones, Prince, and Bruce Springsteen were all in there. Mm. So just like back to back to back. What an era. But also I think Katy Perry was when I had given Jenna the quiz in one of the previous Fun Fridays, I think Katy Perry was the second most viewed halftime mm, show. I think, yeah. So, it was she, so like, good. it was very culturally significant, and a lot of people watched it. That's true. Okay. Last off field one is the best ring. Mm -hmm. So this one, I didn't really know what the rings looked like before and stuff, so I did yeah, a good I really bit of scrolling. Didn't. I was looking around. I'm like, what do I like? What looks cute? I ended up going with Tampa Bay's ring from 2020, which is mm. Super Bowl 55. What really sold it for me was, first of all, it had a lot of gold in it, which I like. It <laughs> okay. had a little bit of color. Some of them were just very silver, very diamondy. This mm. one had, like, the red background behind it. But it actually opens up, and there's, like, a hatch on the top, and it has the field, like, an, a 3D, like, mm, thing of the I field. I do remember seeing that And, one. like, it is cool. an inscription. And I also appreciated some of the teams didn't really have any inscriptions on it. It had an inscription both on the side that was that like the bottom of the cap when you flipped it open and on the ring itself. And so I like that there there was those personal touches. As much as it pained me to give like one of Tom Brady's rings like the shout out, I really didn't want to do that against my will, but I was like this is this is kind of dope. I have to say New England needs to step up their ring game just a little bit. There was a couple that were really good, but then the others, I was like, this is the same. For as many as they have, they might as, you know. I mean, I guess when you win so many, it gets a little hard to, mm, you know, not true. come up with a yeah. new designs. And I but... specifically didn't pick any of the Steelers rings because I was like, I don't want to be partial. And also a lot of them kind of the same. But Well, yes. So as a Patriots fan, this pains me. <laughs> this will, you will love this. Oh. Um, I actually picked the Steelers 2008 ring. Let's go. Um... Yeah, it really hurts my heart to say that. <laughs> I like silver a lot, and mm -hmm. it was very symmetrical. It was very nice. Like, on one side it had Pittsburgh Steelers, and the other side said World Champions, which I laugh at because football's only U.S., but... Mm -hmm. And then it had, since it was, like, their sixth, it had six diamonds, and then I just thought that the sparkles that are, like, part of the Steelers logo went really well with the diamonds that they had put in it, and mm -hmm. so... Also, just it. to clarify, I think you mean 2009. It was a 2008 season in 2009. Maybe. Because but they, they, the 2009 was they refer to them as 2008 oh, okay. season. 2008 yeah. Steelers. Okay. I got very confused when I was doing a lot of cool, these. Cool, cool, cool. Makes sense. No. Okay. <laughs> we can go back to the on-the-field stuff. My best game is Steelers versus Cardinals. That 2009 matchup, okay. which is Super Bowl 42. 
And honestly, this one was just sentimental. It's because it was their sixth. It was a close game. I remember the Penguins also won the Stanley Cup that year, so it was like just a big year for Pittsburgh for in the sports world. Yeah. And Steelers are 100% Pittsburgh's team. So I just remember the fanfare around it. Our elementary school band playing Here We Go Steelers like in the cafeteria, <laughs> like before lunch and during lunch. I mean, very simple. It just has a lot of memory for me. So that's why I picked it as my best game. And it was a close game, too. It's actually funny being in Atlanta now, but it's the Falcons versus the Patriots in the 2016 season. Hilarious. So in 2017. Yeah, yeah. Good one. Um, but even though, obviously, like, I'm biased, this has a lot of, like, personal merit to it, like... I think this was actually a really big game. If you weren't aware, which I'd be shocked if you were, <laughs> but they were down 28-3 to with 17 minutes left in the game. Everyone counted the Patriots out. I went to bed because I was not <laughs> big in football at that time, and I didn't want to watch that because that's embarrassing. Uh-huh. Um, and then I woke up, and they had won, One. and it was shocking. <laughs> I remember um, hearing that my dad literally woke my brother up, like, two hours Aww. after he had gone to bed to tell him that they won, Aww, that's so <laughs> which <cute>. is so <laughs> funny. <laughs> I also think it contributed to Boston sports culture, whether other people like that or not. We have really just adopted the saying, like, they hate us because they ain't us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this really just contributes to that (laughs) ego and really fuels Boston's fire. So So let's just go into best matchup then. So like Jenna said, this is more like the idea of the two teams. Maybe it's a rivalry, whatever the situation is. If there's a sentimental value going into this game, that's what we're dealing with. Chiefs-Eagles, which was literally last Super Bowl, Super Bowl 57. Just because of the Kelseys, I think that was... Mm just really cool that I mean that I think it literally was the first time ever that you have brothers playing in the Super Bowl on opposite teams both great guys from what I can tell like I think they're so funny and so that was really fun for me to watch that game for that reason and to see that matchup happening and to watch also Jason kind of congratulate Travis after the game after the Chiefs had won and see all of that go down and for their mom to be sporting like the double jerseys and all of that Donna Kelsey icon you know it doesn't get any better than that Okay, mine's not realistic okay. because they're both in the AFC. Okay. Um, however, we didn't say it had to be realistic. So <laughs> I had picked the Miami Dolphins and the Buffalo Bills, which Ooh. is, like, somewhat random, yeah. but it's really not. So they've actually had a very big rivalry for, like, really ever since they started playing each other. But I also just think it would be so entertaining now. I mean, just yeah. with, like, Mike McDaniel. Oh, my like, God. <laughs> just... <laughs> Just, like, the characters that would be on this platform. I don't, I don't know. I think it would be hilarious. Yeah. And then, like, maybe we'd even get a Daniel Ricardo. Uh, <laughs> yeah, stop by. So For those of you who don't know, Daniel Ricardo, <laughs> F1 driver, is good friends with Josh Allen. Very, yeah, very good friends. So, um, not, a, not out of the question. We were even discussing this during the playoffs. We, like, yes, If we the Bills make it not out of the question that yes. Daniel Ricardo shows up in Vegas. Um, I, think, I think it would, like, the content we would get from it would be very good. And mm-hmm. I also think it would be a decent game as yeah, well. Not agreed. just not just the content. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the content's important, but the yes. game would be good too. But yeah, the game would also like have some weight to it and all, the Bills Mafia is terrifying to me, but like the way that they fully support their team yeah. is very impressive. Yeah. So I will give them credit there. It's good when a fan base that's that passionate has something yes. to, you know, root for. So finally, best stadium slash location. So again, this is super recency bias, but my best stadium is SoFi in LA, mm. which was used for Super Bowl 2022, Super Bowl 56. 
Honestly, again, it's recency bias, but that stadium is so sick. It's so cool. It has a really neat outside design. I think LA was, is, I mean, a good location, great weather. It was interesting, you know, it's interesting that the game is played at like 3 p.m. there. And mm -hmm. so it ends and it's like still daylight and yeah. there's still a ton of time for them to celebrate and party. And, you know, if you're out there for the actual game, you can do all of that. I would love to go visit it someday and watch any type of game happen there someday because it would just be amazing to be in there and especially if there's a lot of other celebrities there and stuff in that location that would also <laughs> that would be help. super fun yeah be really dope so yeah. that's my that's my pick that one i i did look at that one um i just thought it looked a little too futuristic to sure. be like it's not classic a, like yeah, yeah it's not yeah. traditional i can't say too much because mine is a more recently built one as well but i'm actually going with mercedes-benz mm. here mm -hmm. in atlanta i'm not a fan of like an entirely indoor stadium, but I like I understand the appeal for it, and they can be really cool. And so, what I really like about Mercedes is having that dome and how it can like attract yeah. and actually have like the open air. But then, if there's terrible weather, then you don't have to deal with it. So <laughs> I think it's convenient. Yeah. I also really like how it has on the inside of the top. It's like the screen, like the screens are around mm, and, yeah. and the very mm -hmm. top. And so it's like no matter where you're sitting, you can see like what's going on. So I imagine they put like replays up there and like this, like have the score and things. And so I think that's really cool because what I didn't like about SoFi was that it has the like, yeah, it has the screens kind of hanging down yeah, yeah. and like. I doubt it really obscures people's view that much, but if you're in, like, the very, very top, like, Maybe. I wouldn't even have to worry. Yeah. I wouldn't want to worry about that. True. Whereas, true. like... Which is where we're going to be if we're there, because we, oh, we love the capital. Absolutely. To be on the bottom. <laughs> I mean, it seats a lot. It seats, like, over 70,000 people. Like, that. it's a pretty good space. Um, and Atlanta has good nightlife, too. So, mm -hmm. yeah, like, it... Traffic to get there and back would be horrendous, but mm -hmm. <laughs> it would be a really fun atmosphere, I think, to to have after a game. Yeah. So agreed. That was how I felt about it. Thank you for listening to the eighth episode of The Athlete and the Nerd. We hope you enjoyed our discussion of apathy in the sports world directed towards assault cases, as well as our fun Friday segment where we created our ultimate Super Bowls. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at the Athlete and the NARP. You can contact us by email at theathleteandthenarp at gmail.com with content suggestions, clarifications, or questions. Until next time, I'm Claire Fenton. And I'm Jenna Daly. And this has been The, the Athlete, Athlete and the NARP. NARP.